Hello and welcome to this deep dive into the fabulous goddess Circe. Uh, Angela and I have already been talking about Circe for like two and a half hours getting ready to make this recording, but we love Circe and um, I hope you do too. She is a fascinating mythic figure who is a goddess and she also represents what I like to call the OW, like the original witch, that she is a very specific kind of expression of the goddess and that she practices magic um, and has a lot of other themes I think so many of us identify with. So Angela, hello and welcome. Hi, You're everyone. in the land of Circe in Italy. Um, True. Maybe you'll run into her. Uh, but let's begin by lighting our candles, as we always do when we come together. And just taking a moment to do that counterclockwise motion that gets the energy of cleansing and removal going. And then let's protect our circle and join us together for this discussion on Circe. And I think what I'll read as our invocation for Circe is just a little tiny verse from my book, Entering Hecate's Garden. Um, Original witch, sorceress divine, queen of animals, plants, and minerals, revealer of truth, spirit speaker, opener of the ways of the witch, sorceress divine, Circe. So Angela. Circe is so fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, do you know when you first, like, do you remember your first time you encountered Circe? Yes, I was uh, quite young, actually. I was maybe 11 or 12. And, uh, and I came across editions of the Iliad and the Odyssey at my grandparents' house. And my grandfather said it would be good reading for children. <laughs> It just filled my head with so many explosions. But uh, but it was also it was also my first encounter of Circe, and I was just I was fascinated by her even then. You know, I think that's so interesting. For me, it was in high school, um, grade ten, mm -hmm. English class when we read the Iliad and the Odyssey. I honestly like had no idea what was going on. That's the other thing. It's like they gave these books to children uh, in translations that like were difficult to read. It was kind of like reading Shakespeare. It's like, here, yeah. child, read this. Good luck. <laughs> and comprehend it and it will change your life. So that was my first encounter with Circe. I would have been probably 15, I think. So she's been with both of us for a long time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think because the Odyssey is, is one of those books, it is like reading Macbeth or you know um, other books that when you are a certain age some person in authority will probably give it to you and say here read this and understand it and it will change your life so i think a lot of us are exposed to circe through the odyssey when we're fairly young mm -hmm. um and the odyssey is so interesting 
especially since there's that new translation, which is what you and I were, are working from when we get into our slideshow. We're working from this new translation, which I believe, I could be wrong, so if someone knows better, I believe it is the first like modern translation of one of the like great works of Greek literature done by a woman. Yeah, Emily Wilson. Yeah, it's so, so it, it just, it has so much power, this translation of the Odyssey. Um, so that's how most of us come into Circe is through the Odyssey, or at least until a certain something happened a few years ago, <laughs> which What's is, that? well, you know, which when Madeline Miller's novel oh first God. came out, <laughs> right? And that changed everything. Cersei got her own storyline and, you know, what Madeline Miller did by taking like all the places Cersei appears in mythology and flipping it to her story, her perspective, where Cersei was always seen from the male gaze before um, in a male story, heroes were doing something and Cersei shows up. Well, Cersei never shows up. They always have to go to her. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things about Cersei is that she, like she does not run to anybody in the mythology, right? Like any of the stories like Jason and Medea, they have to go and see her. Of course, Odysseus has to go and see her. Glaucus has to go and see her. It's like um, the other fellow whose name I forget, he has to go and see her. Hmm. So it's like she has this island that she rules over. <clears throat> that's kind of like in the sea, but it seems like even though the island is kind of like remote, it seems like every damn Greek hero has to go by this Everybody island in his boat. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like they're it's like the hero's initiation. Yeah, <laughs> they have to pass through Circe. Like, are you gonna land on Circe's shores, or are you are you just gonna go by? Because if you're just trying to smooth sail by Circe, it probably won't end well. Because there's something about you have to face the witch. Um, mm -hmm. So there's so exactly. much to dive into with Cersei. Um, what should we say before we kind of really get going? Oh, how to say your name. Mm. So I say Cersei. Um, before Madeline Miller's book came out, I always called her Kerke, which is like the Greek way to say her name in English. Mm -hmm. But I, so I have kind of a backstory. Maybe we should start like with the back backstory. So yeah. several years ago, I've always been fascinated with Cersei and I thought there would be a lot of books written on her that, you know, like Jean Shinoda Bolin or Gambutas or somebody would have given Cersei a feminist scholarly study. Um, and I really couldn't find a lot on her from this kind of lens about like almost like that reclaiming vibe. It was like, what was Cersei really all about? And so I started to kind of piece together my own article. I put, so I put it, I published an article. This is back when I used to blog, put a whole bunch of things together, put published it as an article, um, called it Kerke is a goddess we need right now. And I was really, I thought this would start a lot of conversations, but people didn't seem really that interested. And shortly thereafter, the Madeline Miller book was published. And then I realized like, I'm calling her Kerke. 
she's calling her Circe. And in most of the works of art and the different literary ways that Circe's talked about, she's called Circe and not Kerke. But they are indeed the same figure, just different mm. names. So I did, I went back and changed the name of my article and all was well. Um, and then when I included her and Medea um, with Hecate in this book as part of a, like a triad of natural um, plant magic, I spelled it the Roman way Circe, um, which is C-I-R-C-E. And of course, the Game of Thrones character, Circe, um, perhaps was inspired by Circe as well. Only he would know, only Martin would know for sure where he got that name from. So generally, Circe um, is how I say it. I don't know. Do you still, like, what are your thoughts? Have you always said Circe or did you start with Kirke or? I feel like I've always said Circe just because that was, you know, like I grew up with this particular way of saying things in the English language and I didn't know any Greek, but it's also, I don't know, like I'm coming at it from the perspective of languages alive. And in fact, like when you're moving from different countries, like you learn that even names, like what you think of as proper names, they change all the time based on the linguistic comfort of the population. Like I was quite surprised to discover that, for example, um, Michelangelo is not the same in France. You know, like it'll be called Michelange, or you know, like uh, Leonardo da Vinci is what uh, is what Leonardo da Vinci will be called in France. So, I think that these things kind of differ also based on where you are in the world. So to be to be pedantic about it, I don't think is very productive. Right, and I think like we also get into this like at the time I wrote about Circe for the first time. I was writing a lot about Hecate and, you know, I published two books focused on Hecate um, and there is a lot of discussion about like pronouncing Hecate as well and even spelling Hecate. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about what I would call like anglicizations or making it an English word from words that come from ancient Greek or Latin that that, you know, there's different ways you can say it um, and that it's okay. You can different ways to spell it, but we are, you know, we're still talking about the same figure. I mean, I think the first time I heard someone say Hecate, they call, said Hecate or Hecate. You used to, you know. um, so there's lots of different ways to say things and, you know, I learn perhaps like how others might recommend you say something and then say it in the way that kind of feels right for you. Cersei. Yeah, yeah Cersei. the evolution, yeah. Like changing languages also helps those characters to, to go on thriving. So. Right, it gives them breath too. I think it, we give them yeah. more vitality um, as we allow them to transform. And I think one of Cersei's big themes is transformation. Exactly. Definitely. So we have put together a slideshow of different snippets of authors who've written about Circe, um, some art, and of course, a big chunk of the Circe passage from the new translation of the Odyssey. So if you're watching this, we're going to jump into the slideshow now. So there's our Circe. Um, 
in this really famous painting by Waterhouse. We're going to be talking more about Waterhouse's series of paintings because he was so enchanted by Circe, he couldn't just paint one, he had to paint many. So I think that's going to be a really interesting talk. So I am just going to try to get this slideshow going there. There we go. Okay, so just I did talk about her in my book, Entering Hecate's Garden. For me, Circe is really about like this natural magic it, and it's holistic um, in that like magic is not delineated from what we might call the healing arts. Um, and indeed, you know, like she was called a pharmaca or she practiced pharmakeia. Farm. So the, the expression farm, which now we associate with mainstream medicine, used to refer to this kind of practice that was different than like a male medica, that pharmaca was really different. So pharmaca of the goddess of the sacred feminine associated with this kind of natural magic, potions, spells, herbalism, animals, um, all of these things. So that's you know, kind of a bit of Circe's magic, because I think the type of magic depicted in the stories about her, like we do need to contextualize that a little bit. And I think just talking about her broader context, like what was the understanding of the authors who created and the bards who perhaps, you know, because there's a lot of the thinking is that these stories descended from an oral tradition before they were written down. Um, so what their understanding of a figure like Circe would have been. So Angela, you've got some really excellent notes for us. Um, do you want to just start by talking a little bit about the source, this transformations of Circe? Yeah, this is actually this is actually a really great book. It's said that Madeline Miller, who's a classicist, got a lot of her research from resources like this one. It's called Transformations of Circe, The History of an Enchantress by Judith Yarnall. And basically Yarnall just kind of breaks down everything that we know about Circe from the literature and what she generally represented. Um, the biggest, uh, I guess the biggest chunk of Circe that we find is in, uh, is in Homer's Odyssey. And, uh, and it's, the way that the Odyssey is set up is already really interesting because the Odyssey is a story of two homecomings, right? You have the homecoming of Agamemnon and you have the homecoming of Odysseus. And these homecomings conclude in really dramatically different ways. Like, I think we all know how Agamemnon's goes. It doesn't go very well. <laughs> he dies at the hands of his wife and her lover. Um, and Odysseus's goes a lot better. And a lot of it is related to this sort of, it's almost like a, it's a hero's journey, but it's also an ego voyage, like a, a specifically man voyage through through turbulent waters and encounters with lots of different kinds of women, in fact. And Circe arrives kind of dead in the middle of the story. Uh, and where she arrives in his story or like, you know, where he finds her in the story is really critical because by then his ego is basically shattered. He's come out of a lot of really dramatic failures and also like successes that have gone very poorly as a result of um, his inability to sort of 
keep his own ego at bay, like in the case of the Cyclops, for example, you know, he beats the Cyclops, but he can't help but, you know, give the Cyclops his name at the end, which enables the Cyclops to curse him. And also to control the behavior of his men, like, for example, when his men free the winds that send them all the way back to where they were before. So when he arrives on Circe's island, he's feeling kind of lost and no longer very sure of himself or his, his ability to be the visionary who gets them home. And this is kind of like a really critical moment because one of the things that me and Cindy were talking about was that um, Circe kind of operates as almost like a Baba Yaga for the, for the male ego. She transforms all of his men into pigs and chances are Odysseus would have met the same fate except that he's, a, he's intervened on by grace, in this case by Hermes who kind of meets him in the middle, like before he enters this dark forest to meet the witch <laughs> and, and says, uh, you know, this is kind of what you have to do. There we go. Oh, there you are. And uh, so, yeah, so he, he meets her and he has to sort of um, follow Hermes's instructions line by line, essentially, in order to, um, in order to neutralize the threat that is Circe. And, uh, and make it so that she invites him to her bed, which is not something Hermes says you can say no to, but before you go, make her promise not to, not to do any more, not to do any more bad things, basically, make her promise. And um, so he has to do all this stuff, follow all of these instructions. And as a result, Circe ends up helping him, you know, they become like, this, she becomes this kind of haven mm -hmm. for him and his men whom she transforms back, obviously. And, um, and as a result of his time there, he's also able to navigate all of the other threats and terrors that he's going to meet on his way home. Notably as well, like if you're looking at Circe from, a, from an archetypal perspective, she's a, she comes from this very long line of goddesses that are representing birth and that are representing death. She's kind of like the ultimate figure of, um, of anima, right? Like she's very dangerous to him and she's meeting animus head on. And, uh, and by obeying Hermes's instructions, the result is that, you know, she kind of, she takes his knees and asks him to bed. And uh, this can be read as kind of a submissive behavior on her part, but in order to leave, he has to do the same thing. He also takes her knees and asks for her grace and asks for the right to return home. And a particularity of Circe that, for example, makes her different from the Calypso story, for example, mm -hmm. um, is that a, she doesn't see his need to return home to Penelope as threatening. She releases him and she also gives him the instructions that are necessary to, to getting home safely. So Circe, again, she, she acts as this kind of, even if she, she's not necessarily venerated as a goddess in the traditional sense, she's representing and channeling a lot of these older ideas of a, of a whole goddess that existed even before classical Greece that you have to negotiate with, even as a male figure in a patriarchal society in order to become whole, in order to go home again. It's a necessary transition in your initiation. I'm wondering if you could just define like anima and animus, because I think those are words you and I throw around a lot. <laughs> um, so they're, they come from Jungian psychology specifically. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
but also have kind of entered, I guess, the discourse in, in different ways when talking about like the archetypal feminine and the archetypal masculine. I think, I don't know, would you add anything to those definitions? No, that's fine. So anima is the feminine principle and anima animus is the masculine principle. And the idea is we have both of these things inside us and they need to be in balance at all times. This is actually, I'm glad that you brought that up because the Greeks, they were really all about balance, particularly of these two types of principles. And the Odyssey is very much a story about balancing those things. Like Odysseus is literally leaving a war that's taken many years of his life. Like, so he's leaving this very fully male space of a lot of death and a lot of destruction. And he's trying to get home. And in order to traverse, like in order to get home, which is in itself a very long odyssey, he has to traverse all of these different phases, these different shapes of women. And Circe is right in the middle. Right, because I think Cersei does represent that, like, that liminal space, you know, mm -hmm. that she's like a tipping point, like, you know, when you look at in literary sources, how Cersei is used, she is like that, like initiatory gate, that kind of the early hero's journey, because then the, the later hero's journey, in terms of the, uh, the, the Odyssey. But I want to just like, because I know a lot of times when we talk about anima and animus, like in 2021, it can get confused with like gender roles. So anima and animus are not gender roles. They're an idea that there are two forces that all things are comprised of, and that that is the masculine principle and the feminine principle, and that there are traits and qualities associated with these principles that are largely assigned by humans to these principles. So that's when we start to get into to gender roles, but it's not, you know, it's, it's archetypal. It's beyond like kind of what we might think of as a gender role today. Yeah. This is a way of organizing what is numinous and really difficult for us to kind of comprehend. So if those terms are uncomfortable for you, um, you know, I just invite you to explore whatever terms might work for you, but I'm comfortable and Angela, I think is also comfortable with using the terms anima and animus to distinguish between the, the feminine and the masculine. Yeah, and it's also, I think, helpful while we're talking about this to say that they're equally dangerous and equally nurturing. They're just dangerous and nurturing in really different kinds of ways. So I think, yeah. And it gives us a, a, a lens for interpreting like this mythology and our reactions to reading these stories um, that, you know, Cersei is an expression of the goddess. That's a very kind of specific portrayal of the sacred feminine of anima, just like Odysseus is a very specific version of the masculine hero. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many different ways that this can be experienced personally. And I think one of the most important things is just to spend a few minutes, Angela, talking about one of our favorite topics, one of our favorite sidebars, which are goddesses and birds. Um, <laughs> Because I've noticed there is a theme. So last fall, we taught a class on augury on, you know, bird um, 
avian divination and the history of that. And so that's only in Covina, um, the, our subscription network. But so you and I talk a lot about goddesses and birds. And indeed, like in Covina, I talk about birds all the time because I think <laughs> birds are so accessible to us and they're so important to understanding like the context of a lot of these stories that are like 2000 years old that I that you and I spend a lot of time talking about because we love. So yeah. give us a little bit about Circe and the birds. <laughs> so Circe can mean a couple of things in ancient Greek. It can mean either circle or hawk. And when we're looking at her from the perspective of Homer, like the, the idea is generally like when he's talking about Circe, um, the, the meaning of her name is referring specifically to hawk. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, yeah, so just to, to point back at like a, what you what you like sort of screenshot here and that I highlighted in a crazy way, um, Judith Yarnall is looking at a Maria Gimbutis research about like, you know, the relationship to birds and divinity specifically. And uh, so birds were kind of like an obvious metaphor for like the divinity of the gods. Like it said at some point in this book that, um, you know, like uh, birds are the main way in which gods manifest or transform, um, particularly in stories like the Odyssey. They're really, you know, these sorts of messengers of the divine. And uh, hawks and vultures have a specific relationship to the goddess, which goes back to these ideas of um, like, what is this original goddess figure specifically? Before classical Greece, um, there was this understanding that like all goddesses are kind of vestiges of one sort of like primary original goddess. And uh, by the time the classical Greeks arrive, um, they basically cut the many faces of this one goddess into different kinds of basically what are what Young and Karenhi called color bands. Right. So you know you have like Aphrodite, the very sexy one, <laughs> and, and Athena, the strategic, you know, sort of warlike one. Um, but if you look at earlier cultures, like a Sumerian culture, for example, um, you see a lot of these principles encapsulated in one goddess, like a Inanna, for example. Who is, a, who is life, but she's also wildly destructive. Um, and we have both of these. Um, just to return to like the vulture hawk thing specifically, um, there was this really old burial practice that we've talked about a little bit in some of our previous panels, which was the concept of sky burial. And it was this idea, um, it was, it happened in, definitely it happened in a Chetal Huyuk, which is where uh, Turkey is now. And uh, as well as in ancient Iran, among the Zoroastrians, I think that they still practice it. And also among Tibetan Buddhists mm -hmm. who in some villages still practice it. It's this idea of preparing bodies so that hawks can pick at them. And then, uh, and then the remains of the bodies are disposed of in whatever ways that people think of as appropriate in particular cultures. In the case of um, Chita, in the case of Asia Minor, um, the bodies were picked at by vultures, which is what you know we kind of understand that they did, but nobody's actually really sure because nobody was really there. <laughs> but we were living above our dead that vultures first picked off of. So there was this very close relationship between life-giving goddesses who also provide, who also brought death. 
Um, and this was sort of symbolized by the vulture. And as time progresses, progresses and nobody really does hawk, like vulture-based burials anymore, sky burials, um, this image kind of softens to the hawk, which is still a flesh-eating predator. But now you have uh, these much more, I suppose, less scary divine traits associated with the hawk, right? Like the hawks can, they can fly far, they can see very far. They're also very, they're also very particular and incisive. They're also really aggressive predators. You know, they can kill goats, for example. So they can hold their own, even though they're quite small. And, um, and so you have this idea associated with Circe of, a, of her sort of representing this much older idea of a goddess that doesn't necessarily exist in the formal sense in classical Greece anymore, like a, the goddess as a whole figure of, um, of life and death, and this is what the feminine was. And uh, to illustrate this as well, we have the uh, what's called the Bernie relief on the left. Nobody actually knows who this figure is. Sometimes um, people call her Inanna, sometimes she's Lilith. Um, but it's also a really interesting illustration of Circe because it illustrates so much of what we know of her. You know, she had this relationship to animals that was friendly among what we consider quite fierce animals, mm -hmm. like um, lions and leopards um, and owls and things. But they're also, but they're also quite tender indirect relationship to her and there's also an aspect of fierceness as well like you know and then you see her with the wings and she also has you know you can't really see it but her feet are talons and this is a very very old idea of you know like the goddess coming down from on high she might bring life and she might bring death again like a very baba yaga idea of what it is to sort of encounter a goddess and circe is also I think if she gets kind of like a pass and is able to behave in dynamic ways that other gods, other goddesses cannot in the Greek pantheon, it's also because she has this extra loophole added to her, which is that she's a witch. And she doesn't have to be a witch because she's a goddess. Like in theory, she has, she has divine power. Um, but a witch is also somebody who's engaged in land-based ritual practice, somebody who's cultivated the actual practice of magic, which is so much of what Madeline Miller's book revolves around, like why Circe chooses to sort of shun like the ease of doing things in a divine way, sort of like snapping your fingers and then you have it, and engaging in this deeper practice instead of witchcraft, which is something that is a that is feared, but that also gives her an additional power that she might not necessarily have. She's not even necessarily a high goddess either. She's a nymph, which is kind of like, you know, I think Madeline Miller says something like nymphs are best known for mostly being chased around. Right, by Poseidon <laughs> or somebody. Yeah, somebody. Exactly. They don't really, you know, they don't really get their own story and they don't have a lot of power. I yeah. just, I want to say a few things. Okay, so shout out for you saying, um, Satal Oyuk properly. Did I? <laughs> you nailed it. I was like, she did it. She's so <laughs> you're brave because I would just be like, and Anatolia in ancient Anatolia. Anatolia. Um, mm -hmm. So that's a specific. So a lot of the history, like a lot of the older history about whether we're talking about Circe or Hecate or even like Cybele or Cybele, however mm. you want to say it, 
um, a lot of the origin comes from like Asia Minor, like um, Ar Iran, Turkey, that a lot of the oldest bits of history that we have come from this area. Yeah. And like you said, like this image, the Bernie relief, or sometimes called the Queen of the Night, um, which is in the British Museum, which of course there's other issues around the fact that it's there. Um, like I just feel like Cersei's story and kind of trying to document this in an hour or two, it's like her story is the story of so many things. And it's even like in art like this, like ancient works of art that were appropriated um, and you know taken to lands where they don't belong and they're still there today. I feel like there's a lot in Cersei's story about her choices to kind of like refute the gods, refute the family, the refute the, the power structure and to find her own way. And I think when we talk about our understanding of how Cersei is portrayed, you know, through classical literature and how it's translated, how it's represented, how it was discussed, like it's always through that colonialist, patriarchal lens. And that's why the, I would say the new translation of the Odyssey is so interesting. Mm. Um, and as a companion to Madeline Miller's very feminist novel about Cersei, that you know like this is there's a lot to unpack and Cersei is this like nexus of all of these things you know she is the one who chose to not like lean towards the gods she stepped away from the power structure and she said you know I'm like going to be doing things my way and a lot of times she is attributed and I, I just talk about this in kind of a poetic sense in my book you know as like the original witch like mm -hmm. at least in terms of like greek mythology that her starting to craft those spells in the recorded history that we have that's really like where that shows up of course there's medea as well and other lesser known figures like samatha but you know her being this pharmaca and doing these spells and like you said and refuting the fact that she's at least half goddess um, daughter of Helios, the sun embodied, and she could just snap her fingers and do like, you know, some of those things like Artemis and Athena were fond of, but, and, but instead, like she cultivated the natural world and really tended and cared to the natural world and, you know, gave us like pharmacaea, gave us the idea in a mythic sense of working with herbs to make potions that were both medicine and also poison, like that she comes with all of this. She comes with a lot, our Cersei. And I think that's why she continues to fascinate us like over 2000 years later. Definitely. And yeah. you know, like you said, a minor, well, not a minor character, but she's not like the star of the Odyssey, but mm -hmm. she's really different, like you said, than Calypso and the other women he encounters and even different than I would say Penelope, the wife. Like Cersei plays a role and you know, I've read different, papers that kind of reduce her to mistress of Odyssey of, of Odysseus, but she's not, she's very no. different. She's teacher, she's mentor. She's like a high priestess figure in a way, you know, like she's not, I don't know. Okay, she's more like a consort than she's not a, uh, like Odysseus like, doesn't like a take care of her. No, um, she not. doesn't need him. Um, you know, that 
she knows she he has like there is a need for him to spend time with her that he she is teaching him things yeah she sends him to the underworld to get the instructions that he needs to go home and he still has to go back to her because <laughs> right because Tiresias's instructions are more like moral than practical and he needs Cersei to like spell out each and everything he's going to encounter and just break down you know how to avoid being decimated by each of these problems yeah and, and I think that's so interesting like from like a modern psychological perspective it's like looping back to anima and animus it's like you know if you are like the masculine hero in order to become whole, there is a need to understand what is opposite to you mm -hmm. and to learn from what is opposite to you. And so I think like when I wrote that article, Cersei is a goddess we need right now, I was talking about that because when you look around like the internet, this ability to take, to try at least to understand uh, the other, the opposite, like when you look at politics and so many things, it seems like the internet is not very good at helping us, you know, to, to go on that journey ourselves, like to, you know, like to see ourselves as Odysseus um, and we have a certain perspective in the world and we need to go to Cersei to really learn a different perspective to help us solve this problem and I think so many of us are just like, no, like I, I am here. I don't need to understand anybody else. And I think Cersei in the telling of the Odyssey, like she learns to understand Odysseus too. So I would say that there is a reciprocity in yeah. the Odyssey that a lot of times, you know, in feminist scholarship, you know, I've, I've read different pieces where it seems like, you know, Cersei is almost Odysseus's victim, but, but I, I've never experienced, I've never felt like she was his victim. Maybe Calypso, like that's a different story. You know what I mean? Like you look around, but there was a, like, there is a meeting of the minds here, even though she is a goddess and he, like you said, she starts off by kneeling down to him um, because she's- She's equaled. Oh, she's lonely, bored, lonely. Mm -hmm. I don't know, just yeah. horny, who knows. Um, <laughs> <thanks>. <laughs> Um, but then like at the end of the story, he kneels down to her. So there is that equanimity that um, in the Odyssey, like it's demonstrated by that piece of the story, which like you said, is very different than what happens with Calypso. Yeah. And that she prepares him fully to go to the underworld to do what he needs to do, which, you know, in a psychological sense is about like um, confronting our own personal underworld like the shadow and the spirits and all of the things that kind of like our own hungry ghosts yes exactly. and like you know there's that idea of like near ghosts and far ghosts so like some of us have um near like things that are near like near ghosts that haunt us but some of us have like the far distant ghosts that and i think in odysseus's underworld journey like he has to go to those far ghosts like the things that he does, you might not even know that you're still haunted by, but you are really haunted by it. And Cersei was the the witch for the job to prepare him for that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, like the time that he spent with her was like this maturing process. Because she was mature 
Um, and I think Madeline Miller's book does a really good job at kind of documenting Cersei's journey from, you know, being this naive girl, naive nymph, to being the clever one, you know, who can uh, turn men into pigs. And then she, after Odysseus stays with her, she becomes the wise one. And, you know, to see that kind of like that, um, that kind of like journey from a more female perspective of like, you know, we often call it the triple goddess made in mother crone, because we like to kind of give it neat little silo labels. But I really think that journey of like the full goddess, the hawk goddess, is that she is naive, clever and wise, that she's all these things that she's life, death yeah. and the in between. And so I, I do think that Cersei's time with Odysseus is like there's really fertile ground there for us to explore if we um, identify as women and how perhaps like we've lived on terms where we allow our greatest personal transformation um, to come through like how we've taken care of others. I think there's a lot there. Right. Because, you know, this. right. Like, yeah. because, you know, she who knows, like she doesn't even get a story because, the, you know, like these are stories told by men in a patriarchal society. So she there's not we don't have a lot, you know, we don't have a lot of. Um, writing from like females from that period. I mean, we do have some poetry, but there's not a lot that survives or who who even knows at this point. You know, maybe some of these things were actually written by met women, but when they were translated and when the archaeologists were digging them up because of their own bias, they just assumed it was all written by a guy. You know, yeah, so I, I think true. we're really just starting to like understand uh, a lot of these treasures from antiquity in more sophisticated ways. Yeah, and I love that you use that word because even though we don't have a lot on Circe, there is so much sophistication to her to her behavior, right? Like, um, you know that she's kind of like the one leading the ship, like right when right when you first encounter her, she has the power to <coughs> just down these men instantly. And uh, and when she's bested by Odysseus, there's this kind of like no hard feeling situation. She yeah. becomes a, an exceptional and lovely host. And um, and when he says, okay, like it's time for us to go, like I really need to get home. One, he can be honest with her, even though they've been, well, no, like hopefully it's not an even though, hopefully it's because also they've, they've gotten to know each other and they've been quite intimate and they know what matters to the other. Um, and when he says that, you know, regardless of how she feels, she just lets them go. And she also lets them go with really important instructions. And she also sort of like pulls back a little bit from the intimacy that she's created in this environment. You know, she becomes a much more formal goddess again in, you know, in the releasing them. You know, there are no demands on her side, um, which is a really different experience from Calypso, who's a, who's a very sort of like, a lot more of like a woman behaving in a patriarchy. You know, she becomes mm -hmm. obsessive. She begs. She's like a, you know, she's really needy, <laughs> and, and all of this, even though she herself is also immortal. You know, Circe has a particular kind of self possessiveness that really stands out against the other kinds of characters, and even operates as almost like a, a mirror to Penelope, because obviously, like when Odysseus returns to Penelope. 
Penelope doesn't just welcome him back with open arms, you know, she challenges him as well. I think that's really interesting, you know, like because as Odysseus's journey continues, as he gets more mature, as he works back home, back to Penelope, back to like that wholeness, um, that Circe comes, you know, in the story as this, like this figure who is like that tipping point, mm -hmm. you know, where he's um, becoming more mature in how he handles things, perhaps. Also how he deals with women. Yeah, how he deals with women, perhaps. And, you know, and part of this, the interest, like the, the whole thing with, so Cersei does, so the story opens, the men come on the island, Cersei gets annoyed with the men, she turns them into pigs, if you don't know that part of the story. Um, a lot of people, including me and Angela, would say she didn't turn them into pigs, they were pigs. Mm -hmm. And so it was a spell of revelation, not like that she shifted their form, she just revealed their true selves. A lot mm -hmm. of people have said that. So this happens, um, Odysseus isn't happy, um, for obvious reasons, he's got no sailors, pigs don't have hands to work those oars. <laughs> But also, he's genuinely upset about his men and all that. So, um, so I think that's when Hermes gets involved, right? Mm -hmm. Like, okay. Mm -hmm. So I know you are a great fan of all things Hermetic. So why don't you tell us about Hermes' part in the story? He just, uh, you know, he he appears to Odysseus before he enters this wood, and uh, he just kind of, I just. I love Hermes because he's considered the most, uh, the god who relates best with, uh, with people. So he's usually sent to do the delicate work. You know, like Apollo can't do this work because like Apollo is heavy handed <laughs> and might just strike you down out of spite. And Hermes has like a real, <laughs> like um, he has a real sympathy for humanity. And one of the things that, uh, that I find interesting about his interaction with Odysseus is, um, he doesn't, he doesn't like create like a magical shield for Odysseus. Like, you know, here's what you need to like, you know, best the, the witch Circe. Um, he pulls a plant from the ground. Like he, he understands that this is a situation that requires some delicacy and something that's different from what's strictly understood as divine. It can't be like a divine on divine encounter because that's not really what Circe is. Um, so he pulls the plant from her own land. Um, and gives it to Odysseus as protection. So there's also this, uh, Hermes is interesting too, right? Because he's, a, he's also quite a liminal god. He can go where other gods can't. He also behaves in ways that other gods don't. So this, um, so this ability to understand like the nuance of the, the situation and to understand that in order to best Circe, it's going to be a mix of um, conversation, negotiation, and you also have to use uh, the specific plants of her land because this is also how she works. You know, you have to meet her where she is, is, um, is a much more subtle approach than like, I don't know, a Zeus lightning situation <laughs> or, uh, you know, Athena like driving in guns a-blazing. Like, you know, Hermes is like, you know, you have to finesse the situation and um, meet the witch like a witch. And, uh, and I just, I love that subtlety that he, that he inserts here. Cause it's also not something that Odysseus would have ever been able to come up with on his own, which is part of why he's here. It's part of his journey, re realizing that um, 
he's not the person for the situation. He needs help. He needs help earning Circe's trust. And his entire interaction with Circe is about learning the degree to which he actually needs help. And yeah, like you said, you made so many excellent points. Um, the, the, the the fact that, you know, they do use Molly, M-O-L-Y, um, you know, Cersei's own medicine and her own weapon as well, that she, this is her special plant, her, her mm -hmm. power plant, and to use that against her, like the meeting of Cersei where she's at, instead of, like you said, this kind of Athenian, you know, just we're just going to change everything up, fuck <laughs> shit up here. Um, you know, that it's very subtle. And there's that idea that, you know, Cersei is special and needs to be treated special. And that Odysseus, his brute force approach to life is not always needed. Hmm. And, you know, Hermes in the mythology is a figure that represents, um, you know, anima and animus. Mm -hmm. the wholeness within because Hermes is what we would call like a gender fluid or a non-binary um, character in the mythology right so so he has this ability to say oh yes she's this powerful sorceress and you're here now so we have to deal with the situation as is and that's not going to work with her and then he also has that more animus perspective that it's like okay well Odysseus has this mission he has to accomplish it's preordained you know it's written in the stars so we need to accomplish a goal here so i think he really balances um you know the storyteller really uses hermes to to kind of show us that that there is odysseus attempting to get his own way but use what is a feminine approach to it exactly right exactly yeah, and notably Hermes is also who Zeus sends to, you know, if you go back to the Iliad, mm -hmm. um, to uh, to accompany Priam when he's trying to beg Achilles, like when he crosses enemy lines, this old king, to beg Achilles for the body of his son back. You know, it's, it's Hermes who accompanies him. And also like when Priam spends the night there, because he can't just go back at that same time, um, Hermes stays up that night worrying about him and knowing that you know he has to go back and fetch him and make sure that he's returned so Hermes definitely has um this nuanced sympathy and uh yeah and he so nicely embodies both of those principles the anima and the animus like that you can be both of these things right and I think just like staying with like how he helped Priam you know it was women in the ancient world who prepared and dealt with the dead so you could say mm -hmm. even in doing that like even in Hermes being a, a psychopomp mm -hmm. that, yeah. you know, like Hecate is often a goddess that's seen as a psychopomp, that the role of the one who guides back and forth to the world of spirits was often like a feminine role. Yeah. Because it called for a different approach than just going in Zeus style, right? With, <laughs> with lightning bolts out. Or like, you know, John Wayne in a Western movie, guns out or Clint Eastwood style that's yeah. navigating the physical world and the spirit world, often a different approach than the hero's approach was required. And, you know, like with with Hermes or Mercury, if you prefer to call him that, I think a lot of times this whole aspect of him, whether it's like the planet or in our relationship with him as a spirit, that we forget this very nuanced, non-binary, soul guide, 
compassionate side of him and tend to focus on his kind of more superficial like trickery mm -hmm. and you know the mercurial nature but that underneath it there is this very different um soul guide aspect that will be there you know like in this business with um odysseus on cersei's island with priam and so on that he's there to help i think you know also when um dionysus needs to hide out as a child hermes yeah it's right yeah, <laughs> him. yeah no but like i'm so glad that you brought this up as well because hermes is also a god who precedes the greek pantheon and um before uh before the pantheon is sort of formed he was a fertility god um pro who probably came from crete and um and the particular kind of fertility that he oversaw was the principle of heteric love um it's this kind of a relational almost like a a sibling like a, a sibling like love it's often described as like a love that you develop with a companion like on a trip mm -hmm. like um like so that deep love that forms between friends so odysseus you know obviously he has this kind of relationship with um with his sailing companions but like hermes like approaching him this way is also a really interesting Thing in this context because uh, the relationship that Odysseus forms with Circe is also a very heteric relationship. Like I think that we've talked before that um, heteras were specifically women in Greek culture who were not prostitutes and they weren't wives, but they were considered like intelligent consorts and their children could be recognized. And they were these kinds of like um, friends who were muses to to men and they just they had a really different social situation so you also have this heteric principle going here that i think is very strong and you know like the authors of the story like they would have been aware of this principle you know perhaps as a literary device so bringing hermes in at this point in the story is you know saying well circe is this type of figure like much in the same way, like in the Marvel universe today, if Black Widow shows up, like it's like, oh, we know that she's that type of figure and we can kind of say this is going to be that type of story. Yes. Right. So, I mean, so those things would have been cues that they would have understood, just like we today might understand, you know, cues about Black Widow in a story. You know, what would yeah. so Hermes in that in this story played this very specific role but a really important role mm -hmm. you know that if he's there he is it's not it, it's something that we want to really explore in terms of understanding who Cersei was and that Hermes was deeply involved in this story as well yeah and if you're interested in Dionysus we did Semele I think two months ago Right, so you can go and find the episode on Semele. We talk a lot about Dionysus because Semele was Dionysus's mother. So we mm -hmm. give Hermes a lot of space in that episode as well. Yeah. I guess Hermes always gets space when you and I get together. We have birds, we have witchy goddesses, and we have Hermes. He's also our patron god, so he gets a lot of high fives. Yes, he does. <laughs> All around Hermes. <clears throat> and Hermes also associated with both the underworld and winged creatures. Mm -hmm. So well, he was, you know, he had those fancy sandals. He, was, uh, <laughs> he didn't have talons. He didn't have hooked feet like the goddesses did sometimes. He got actual sandals. Mm -hmm. Upgrade. It was an upgrade. Okay. So where are we at in this story? So 
So we've started, we've started with the pigs and then we went to the thing with Mercury, Hermes and the Molly. And now we are at the part in the story where he goes to the dazzling bed of Circe. Mm -hmm. The dazzling bed. Um, so in this story, I mean, and then it go, I, I just put this on the slide, the fact that, you know, she had a full staff. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she was on this island and she didn't have anybody to help her. She had a palace. She had staff. Everything was going well. And then they are getting ready for this big feast. Um, and so everything goes good. So they, he goes to the bed of Cersei. All is well. They spend some time together. She frees the men. Everything is good. Um, but then, like you mentioned earlier, after a season passes, then it becomes obvious, I would say to both of them, that it's time for Odysseus to leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this part, you want to talk a little bit about, so this is the part where he has to go to see Tiresias and her instructions that she gives him. And I love what she says here in this translation. Um, and she answered, Laertes' son, great King Odysseus, master of every challenge. You can hear the irony and sarcasm. Um, <laughs> You need not remain here in my house against your will, but first you must complete another journey. Go to the house of Hades and the dreadful Persephone and ask the Theban prophet, the blind Tiresias, for his advice. Persephone has given him alone full understanding, even now in death. The other spirits flit around as shadows. Mm, yeah. So then off Odysseus goes to the next chapter in his great hero's journey and leaves Circe behind in some versions of the story and in Madeline Miller's version of the story, she has a son by Odysseus. Telegonus. Telegonus, um, who has his own, lives his own best life um, and <laughs> in a different story. So there's a lot here because in some versions, uh, Telegonus ends up in Odysseus's kind of territory and maybe kills Odysseus, maybe doesn't in different yeah. versions of the story. So there is a there is a complete arc to this story where Telegonus um, shows up and kills his father. So the son becomes father and so on just like and this is something that was very important to the way of seeing the world uh, in the ancient Mediterranean like so you see this like with Cronus or Saturn and Zeus or Jupiter having to slay him as well so this was a theme to them killing your dad so you could stand in your power was a thing that men did yeah well, not right it was a it was part of the mythic like the mythic themes that they would use in these stories Side point to this, um, okay. in the Arrestia, <laughs> so the Arrestia is kind of like a series of stories that's happening kind of to the side. So like, like we, what we were talking about earlier, the Odyssey is the story of like two homecomings, right? You have Odysseus's homecoming, which is generally a positive one, apart from that, like he kills everybody before he reunites with his family. Um, and the homecoming of Agamemnon, which is horrible. You know, like a uh, Clytemnestra and her lover kill him, and her lover actually already has like a generations long beef with Agamemnon's family. And then after that, um, Orestes, the son of Clytemnestra, kills them. 
Um, so the Arestia is about this particular conflict, like there's something wrong with Agamemnon's house. Um, and it's sort of like used as a mirror against what Odysseus is going through. And it's, it's kind of like, the Arestia is basically a story about how the gods realize this is not a good viable long-term model, like the sort of like eye for an eye situation. It was in fact a huge problem. And in the case of Agamemnon's family, it could go on forever, like generations and generations and generations. And so the Arestia is also the story of um, Athena deciding to form the first like um, sort of like, judi like judicial system like, you know, like where Orestes will appear in front of um, the other gods and, you know, he'll have time to argue his case and then there will just be a ruling and then everybody just has to abide by this ruling after that and no more killing. The killing is over because now we have a judicial system. Um, the, the sucky thing about the story is like Athena being who Athena is in the, in the Greek pantheon. <laughs> the, the rulings for and against Orestes are a tie and Athena is the tiebreaker. And basically her position is something like, well, <laughs> dads are more important than moms. So it's fine. Like, like <laughs> everyone just go about your business. Orestes, you're off. Nobody can revenge kill him anymore. So like, so kind of like used as a model, like to Odysseus's story, like Odysseus's story is also a story of, um, Greek culture leaving this more violent eye for an eye culture and returning to something that more resembles a stable domesticity where ideally this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. Like we're, we're trying to build a new ideal here. So yeah, the Telegonus thing, <laughs> kind of a hair in that soup. Right, and I think one more thing I wanna mention before we depart kind of Circe and the Odyssey <laughs> is that, that a lot of times, like the, the, whether or not the sex was consensual, that's mm -hmm. something else for us to like pay attention to when we are trying to like understand like the, the whatever it is we're reading, both in a literary sense, and then to, to find like our personal meaning in it. And, you know, like with Circe and Odysseus, like, in some sense, like, you know, she's not really portrayed as the super seductress. She's not not portrayed as a seductress, but it's more like in some tellings of myths, of course, Zeus seemed to like sexually violate anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so in this story, though, like there is that, again, that equanimity, that like he mm -hmm. went to the bed of Circe. You know, there wasn't a lot of tomfoolery. Well, I mean, there was some that each fooled each other once, so they were kind of even, right? They were even Stephen here. And then they could meet like in this way. There there wasn't like all mm -hmm. that trickery. She, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. So th I think that's important in this story that Cersei wasn't taken against her will. You know, there wasn't any of that business. Yeah. And I also just love like, I don't know, before we leave the slide, how, you know, when he asks her, can I go home? Um, she she's so equanimical about it 
you know, like you don't have to stay here against your will. Here are your instructions for the next journey. And then this like this little clip that you've set aside here. Then Circe came and tied up one black ewe and one ram by the ship and slipped away easily. Who can see the gods go by unless they wish to show themselves to us? So these are so these are the things that he needs in order to draw out the dead. There are all of these instructions related to what he has to do with these animals. But I, I just love that, like, you know, like he's like had a great time together and you know like it's been really intimate she's been this great host and all this stuff and um as a going away gift she just kind of like she doesn't even appear to them you know she almost doesn't even necessarily want credit she just slips in invisible and she places these things by their ship knowing that they will need them and she just leaves you know without saying goodbye so that's that's also like a very particular kind of um maturity in this relationship that again really distinguishes her from like you know how women are often portrayed in these kinds of stories and in fact how calypso is portrayed you know like um really clingy and she needs him to stay and needs him to like vow his love and all this stuff like circe is a very mature character with her own self-possession right like and just to contrast that to like we did when we did semelec who became mm -hmm. infatuated with zeus Oh. and was like obsessed with him mm -hmm. and then um we did persephone above ground i think last month and so you know persephone taken against her will mm -hmm. but then became like married to hades yeah. and you know we did um psyche and arrows earlier so this is not circe falling head over heels in love with odysseus and like living her life for and through him Right, yeah. Circe is like Odysseus stops at her island and is living in Circe's world, mm -hmm. and it's interesting that this idea of the truly independent woman—what's that? I forget that word. It starts with an H. It just flew out of my head. You said Tara? it. Tara. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that—that's who she is. Like she doesn't need them. And then the fact that the, you know, like kind of Circe's part in the Odyssey ends with like, who can see the gods go by unless they wish to show themselves <laughs> that? You know, it's like, so Circe chose all of that because, you know, she's daughter of Helios, has those shiny, sparkly sun eyes. Um, and, you know, like that, this was her of her choosing, which is a really different thing to say than like when Persephone was abducted or when Semele became infatuated with Zeus yeah. or Psyche with, Air, you know, all the other stories, there is a lot different to Persephone's story. Um, and no, sorry, there's a lot different to, to Circe's story that, I don't know, it's really juicy. And the fact that she was a witch, I think it's like, oh, here's the idea that the witch is this independent woman who doesn't need marriage doesn't need the masculine doesn't need civilization is happy contained in her own island so what it may feel like oh she's exiled and away from other people and at the same time like there is this sense of contentment she's not trying to leave with him she's mm -hmm. fine you know it's very we're going to do medea in a few months so like with Medea, it's very different. Jason tricks her into doing all these things. And then she gets on the damn boat with him. Yeah. Right? 
That is not a story that ends well. <laughs> no, it's not a story that ends well. But you know, so it's a very different story. And I like I mean I think it'll be in August when we do Medea, but so they are all in the same family. We should probably say that too before we move on a little further, is that Cersei and Medea related. Um, oftentimes in the popular version of the story, Cersei is Medea's auntie. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Medea Jason trick, it's like the whole Medea thing. We won't do it too much, but so Jason does things. He tricks Medea into doing the magic and she does the magic and she kills her brother. And then afterwards she feels super guilty as one should. Um, And so her and Jason have to run away and they get, and they come to Cersei to um, give them absolution basically. All of them, yeah. Yep. So that's another hero's journey where Cersei shows up. Um. So this is kind of interesting. So we're, we've selected some art of Cersei throughout the centuries because there is, she is such a popular figure in um, visual art and different kind of like ways of, I don't even know what to call this. I'll let you talk about this. So this comes from the 15th century, is that correct? It's the, well, it's in the 1500s, so it's the 16th century, Okay. and it's called the Cantus Circaeus, and this is like, I don't know, because because we were talking earlier, like, we're, like it's not clear that Circe had a goddess cult, like, I, I really don't think she did, um, but she, she appears often as a literary device, um, and she appears often as this, like, you know, this older representation of what a goddess is, but there's also, there are also all of these allusions to her particular type of intelligence and her particular way of seeing the world. So this, uh, this, this very short document, um, the Cantus Circaeus, was written in Latin by Giordano Bruno, and it's basically, um, it's almost like a memory palace device where Circe is talking to a to a kind of um, a student, and uh, she's teaching him a song, like a, a very general song about her own story, like uh, about what happened with the men and how she transformed them into these animals. Um, but basically, what she's actually teaching him is almost like a way of uh, creating a memory palace, like creating associations of occurrences, so that he can just have a stronger and better memory. And um, and the way that she does this is by sort of explaining, you know, you have these sorts of general ideas of things that are always connecting to more specific ideas of things. And she actually uses. Um, the story of her turning the men into animals to illustrate this like you know I did not really transform them this was their basic nature and here is how you put these things together and you know and it all becomes this kind of like almost mathematical model for learning how to remember things based on like tying things to different like word consonants and all of this other stuff but I just uh I really like, you know, as sort of a contrast to how Circe appears in art as like quite often the seductive and terrible figure, um, kind of drunk on her own power sometimes. There is also this sort of literary universe where Circe is continuously appearing and she's, she continues to be a teacher of these really complex arts, in this case, memory. Right, and, and you can make an like, for the journey Odysseus had to go on after he left Circe was a journey of memory, right? Like it was a memory to go back to face his mother, to face like his distant ghost. Like he had to go and face his distant ghost. So I think there is like a theme of Circe that is about like 
honoring memories and seeing those connections mm-hmm. like because she is like a witch who's associated with natural magic not Cersei's thing she wasn't summoning demons and archangels and whatnot um so she was very much like w- working with the plants this kind of natural magic that she is about that connection and the connection of all things which i love how in this little treatise you know she's using all the animals and all the names of the goddesses to kind of teach memory and to teach connection correspondences correspondences right like this is uh, you know this is a document about correspondences Um, (laughs) and you know like if you practice natural magic like i do you know seeing these correspondences that all things have unique signatures yet all things are also intertwined i think that's what the cantus circaeus um really kind of gets at like in the in that remembering and seeing these connections as a cognitive skill is something that's quite magical and that it's something that we can learn um i just think there's so much there and you know cersei in in um the Madeline Miller novel, like her memories of her early childhood are so important in shaping who she is. So when you go to those early childhood parts of the book and talks about like how she was really exiled because she was unique and different, um, you know, the the role of memory in the novel, I think is very, very important. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love this. So um, I chose pictures from around the same time as the text that we're going to be highlighting so if you're watching this instead of listening to it this is absolutely my favorite uh, (laughs) artistic visual artist visual visual representation of Cersei so this kind this is very medieval if you're looking at it you're like yeah that's a super medieval um, illustration so it's Cersei looking very much like a character from an original performance of a Shakespearean play, um, pointing at Odysseus, who has the head of a lion, because um, we didn't actually get too much into that. We did, when we looked at the Bernie relief, we talked a little bit about the goddess and the lion and that association, but but here Odysseus actually has the head of a lion, just to be clear. Um, and then um, her pigs and so on, or, or, is, or is the lion, like who is the lion in this? Because the name Odysseus is over this fella in the pink and the green. That says um, Ulysses there. So who yeah. is the lion fella? I have no idea. Is it Hermes? No, it can't be Hermes. Hermes. When is Hermes ever associated with the lion? I'm not sure, actually. I'm but not you sure. see how, like, this, you know, like, because Circe is labeled, but yeah. Ulysses, which is Odysseus in Latin, is over this fella with, who doesn't look very, this guy, anyway, I don't know. It's, it's very fascinating. Um, and then the pigs like are looking feminine. quite dapper. I like how the pigs look very dapper. Very corny pigs. Right, yeah. they don't look very poor kind. They look no. very like, hmm. What's going on here? <laughs> it's true. Okay, let's see what we've got next on our art history, liter- art and literary history combo tour of Cersei. Okay, so you already mentioned that often she is kind of portrayed as this sorceress, um, kind of mysterious. So here are a couple of works of art from the 14th century and the 15th century. Um, So (laughs) 
she looks very perplexed here yeah she looks like she's having an argument yeah she <laughs> does right or she is she like is she looking at odysseus in this <laughs> like she's like are you talking about this face <laughs> And then this one I think is interesting um, by Dasso Dosi from this is from the 14th century, 15th sorry the 16th century. Yeah. I don't. I should just stay away from trying to call things centuries instead of actual dates. It never works. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they make them one century up. I'm sure there's like a very good reason that we can Google, but I think like zero to 100 would be the first century. Okay, so that's why. So if so it's in the 1500s, it's the 16th century. Yeah, okay. And if it's, it's in the 1600s, it's the 17th century. So I actually yeah. did this right on the slides, right? Because we started here from the 15th century. <laughs> and now we are in the 16th century and the 17th century. Yes. Okay. Exactly. Sometimes those things happen here that we need to just like complete sidebar. Okay, back to Cersei. Um, so here Cersei is uh, with a she's painting in this one, um, but she and she doesn't look like nearly as menacing. She looks very pensive, like she's thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And I think this is like uh, what do you call it? Like a suit of armor. Mm -hmm. So who knows yeah, where the men have gone? Well, there are also like, if you look in the upper left-hand corner of this picture, there are also <laughs> these like men who are just suspended from the vine. Okay, right. <laughs> and she's like looking at them. Yeah. And even though like her island is like far removed from urban areas, there's like, is this just her palace? I suppose so, yeah. And I guess these flowers would probably be her molly because that is often like she's depicted with a, a with one particular flower. Yeah. Um, and um, so what, yeah, what is going on in this, this guy? So the men actually didn't get turned into pigs. They're just up in the tree and yeah. who knows what's going on here, but she's just drawing a picture. Yeah, yeah. But she's got her torch going too. So there's the, and then there's a bird and one of the interesting things that you and I kind of discovered in looking at probably at least a hundred images or more of Cersei in art, mm -hmm. that we couldn't find one with her with her hawk. Like that yeah. is her namesake. That's so, true. It's really strange. It's really strange. So I think someone out there who is a visual artist should create a hawk Cersei. It would be very okay. cool. Cause this is just like, what is this? This might be a quail. Um, who, who's the quail? The quail is Asteria, right? Ecate's mother? Yes. Okay, so yeah. quail. So a lot of the Greek goddesses turned into birds, had bird companions. So Asteria, Hecate's mom, turned into a quail when she had to run away from Zeus. So maybe that's why the dog is confused because he's like, there's a quail, it should be a hawk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so another place, so we've talked about Circe in the Odyssey. Uh, so Circe also appears um, in the Aeneid. So this is kind of interesting. So just a second, I can't quite see it because of the screen share thing. Um, so Aeneas's wet nurse, Keita, dies and he honors her with a funeral. Afterwards, they continue sailing 
but then they come close to Cersei's Island um, and they hear the sounds of humans turned into wild beasts. Um, but Neptune favors them and they don't, he doesn't have to like encounter Cersei. He mm. can just carry on to future encounters with challenging women. Um, <laughs> but for the, he gets a reprieve. Um, but Cersei appears on the shore as a royal queen in this deep blue dress, a fire burning in the background. Um, you know, she reigns over her animals alone in exile. And then the ghost of Kaeta appears to look on in pity from the upper right. So it's a very different in the Aeneid, like it's a very different portrayal of Cersei that she's got to cage her animals. Um, and that she's kind of lonely and good thing that Aeneas didn't have to deal with Cersei. It's a different, we'll have to talk more about the Aeneas sometime, but right now where we're focusing on specific figures, um, it's so different than Cersei from the Odyssey. Yeah. So if you're watching, you can see this painting um, from the 17th century, it's where we're staying right now. Um, and then this other portrayal of Cersei from the 17th century, again, with this, like, she seems lonely. Yeah. And there's almost this kind of, I don't know if you feel this way or if it's even appropriate to bring this up because it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, because it's, it's, it's also like a man thinking about like Cersei's exile on this island, right? And what she must have been doing and just the general horrors of her turning men into animals and I don't know personally I'm kind of like if she was so lonely why'd she turn so many people into animals I think that she was pretty happy <laughs> with her own company <laughs> but like it's almost this kind of like a Lady Bathory vibe like there's a there's this famous illustrator um in France called a uh, Penelope Bagu who like who who created a series of stories like illustrated stories about women through history and one of the things that she said was actually it was really hard to do because uh, so many of the stories are like, and this woman was a witch, and this <laughs> woman clearly was a monster. And um, so she, she's like, it's often hard to get to the truth about who these women were because they just get vilified by history. And uh, and this this depiction of Cersei kind of reminds me of like the Lady Bathory stories, how you like, nobody like really knows what happened with Lady Bathory. You know that like she was really good with money and managing her estate. Like eventually the king came to owe her money. And then it was like, well, she was killing virgins and she was just alone in this estate. And you know, there were just dead bodies everywhere. And that's why we had to take her in. She just, you know, and it, this is kind of what this seriously depiction reminds me of. Right, because you know, it's the contrast of, um... Kaida, who was the wet nurse of Aeneas. Mm. So it's like, talk about like the woman who was in service to someone, literally like she breastfed him, mm -hmm. you know? So, and probably in order to do that, like couldn't feed her own children, right? At the time, because that was like wet nursing was this complicated thing where, you know, they would favor the richer child that they were the wet nurse for oftentimes over their own infant, because that was yeah. just the reality of the situation. They didn't have fridges and they didn't have electronic breast pumps. It was different. Um, so that she is this kind of self-sacrificing, i.e. Um, approved female to Aeneas. And Cersei is like the one on her island living her own life. And, you know, like, so 
Kaida looking down at Cersei like with pity being like you know I was the self-sacrificing woman like I laid down everything literally like nourished this man from my own body and here you are being the witch being the independent one the one who doesn't need men and certainly um you know doesn't really bow down to them mm. so of course Aeneas would be scared of that like why would he want to but I mean then he has to go through all these things and he does wise up by the end of the whole story but he was not then, ready for Cersei then it's true and this is also <laughs> such a good illustration of how like you know like in today's arguments like whether they're about like you know like uh, LGBT rights or women's rights like there's this idea that rights are zero sum so like the people in privilege are somehow going to lose something by everybody else having rights and you also see that kind of depicted here like oh like an independent woman well you know what that means like they're just going to turn all the men into pigs and keep them in cages like <laughs> right and you like know like an independent woman it's like well if other women get wind of this then then they might not need us either who knows who knows what'll happen it's yeah. terrifying um I, I don't know like personally mm. i don't know maybe this i don't know if this is too personal if you don't want to talk about this i'll talk about it and then if you want to talk about it, you can talk about it. <laughs> um like for me as an independent woman mm -hmm. like you know because i haven't been in like a committed relationship for like a decade yeah um like i still will get that kind of pushback once in a while like that I am like I must be a witch because you know I live on my own I like I'm happy I don't need a romantic partner I don't need a man to be even more like heteronormative about it I don't need a man and I'm fine like I'm good with it like I know like now most of the people I know have shut up about it but you know people used to try to fix me up with like oh you know my brother or this or that and I'd be like I'm not interested like, I'm good. I am Cersei on my island. Um, my animals aren't in cages. But, but you know, it, but it's like that idea, like, even now in 2021. Um, 2022. 2022, whatever, whatever year, chronological, like 16th century, 15th century, what year what is, is I don't time? know. <laughs> chronological time is a pain. Okay. Uh, <laughs> No, but uh, but I agree with you because uh, yeah, like you know, you know this that I'm living um in Italy with my new boyfriend and also in France, and uh, one of the things that um that I encounter is a. Uh, everybody on both sides of this divide, both in Italy and in France, they all think that I'm just kind of like testing the waters before I make a final decision. You know, like, um, so everybody in France is thinking, well, you know, like soon you're just going to leave this place and, you know, just go live with your boyfriend because that's what people do. And everyone in Italy is also like a little bit anxious, like, what is she doing? Like constantly leaving and what does that mean? And isn't that, you know, it's very anxiety inducing for people, this idea that, um, I don't know, that you haven't been sorted like by the sorting hat, you know, like in yeah. your unit. <laughs> and I think, you know, and that's when like, if, so if you're a woman that doesn't need to settle down, like if you're happy doing, you know, what you have and it works in your real, first of all, it's nobody's business. Yeah. Except for you and your partners. Yeah. Everybody's happy. Like, it's just so weird. But but this this whole thing, if you are a woman, even today, that your primary goal isn't to find a partner. And I think less than 
blessed to have children, but to have a partner that wrote that somehow like being in a committed monogamous relationship is still like this thing. Yeah. Um, and that that involves like cohabiting in the same place all the time. And, you know, I think there's just so much baggage around that, that, you know, like when we appear to be like Cersei in our blue dress, like, you know, and Aeneas is just out there being like, that is too much for me to deal with. Um, I don't know, I think I hear screaming. Yeah, <laughs> it must be, things must be bad there because that's not how I live. And I think that loops back, you know, to the kind of the deeper meaning of like Cersei's role in the Odyssey. It's like Odysseus is seeking to understand. And I think this is like the opposite of that. And I think a lot of what happens on the internet is like Aeneas just being like, I don't know what goes on there, but I don't like it. Yeah, exactly. And you don't even know what goes on. You know, it's just whatever. But you didn't stop. <laughs> Not for me, whatever it is, I don't need to understand it. Um, the other painting is um, Castiglione's Circe from 1651, and she is featured with peacocks. Um, she's got her wand again, and there's something going on in the frieze like, that you may not be able to see if you're looking at the slide, but they're kind of like the story is happening behind her on this frieze. And there's the bull, um, still no hawks. We got some chickens, but still no hawks. Oh, there's a parrot useful useful no hawks in this one either okay let's move on to our next work of art so this actually is at the louvre so i hope you take up my challenge and go and see it because i'm going to go see the the quarry statue that's visiting toronto in august and then we can report back you can go see her she looks so fabulous with her hair done and an umbrella um so this is from the 19th century, the mid 19th century. Um, she looks stunning. She's gorgeous. But of course, her dress is open. I, I oh. love this. She looks so empowered um, and beautiful. And it, it seems like really classical, like going back to the, the way she would have been um, like put into a statue before, although the umbrella kind of cracks me up. It's interesting though, because it's so different from like the Venus Pudica, mm -hmm. you know, like uh, all those pictures of Venus kind of like hiding her body. Um, th those, those are always uneasy statues because obviously like, you know, what's back there is like the fear of rape. And this is like our ideal of women, you know, and just the fact that like Cersei is here, like it's true that she's still totally naked, but like um, that she's just open about it. And there's right. something stately about it. It's, it's such an interesting contrast, I find. You know what this statue, like who, I should say who this statue puts me to mind of is Lizzo. <laughs> I love this. You know, it's just like, like it's, when I look at this statue, that song, got my hair done, my nails, you know, I can't, <laughs> and certainly Check can't rap. my nails. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Baby, how you doing? How you feeling? <laughs> feeling good as hell. That is it. She, she has a good as hell expression on her face. You know, she's got her hand on her hips. She's like, I am woman, hear me roar. Right? I've got an umbrella. <laughs> I've got an umbrella for mysterious reasons that doesn't really make any sense. Um, <laughs> and my hair looks damn good. Exactly. It does. It really does. <laughs> so she's, it's that kind of like body positivity. Um, 
yeah like you know like a female figure like she's also not a stick you know and like you said there's no shame there is no shame in that game that cersei's yeah. putting out exactly and she's also not like demure in her expression at all right she's almost athenian in that like mm -hmm. this is who i am yeah Take very it. lizzo yeah i love okay. it all right so here is a poem about cersei from endymion so the story of Endymion, I don't know, have we covered Endymion yet? I don't think so. We'll have to do Endymion sometime because, you know, there is that, yeah, there's a lot around there. So this is, I sue not for my happy crown again. I sue not for my phalanx on the plain. I sue not for my lone widowed wife. I sue not for my ruddy drops of life. My children fair, my lovely girls and boys, I will forget them. I will pass these joys, ask not so heavenward, so too, too high, only I pray as fair as boon to die, to be delivered from this cumbrous flesh, from this gross, detestable, filthy mesh, and merely given to the cold, bleak air, have mercy, goddess, Circe, feel my prayer. So that is the great John Keats writing about his forthcoming demise and petitioning Cersei to release him, which brings us all the way back to like the Bernie relief and this goddess who is mistress of life and death. It's a, it's a beautiful, I know it's really morbid, but I don't know. I love that. It's great. Because it's like, you know, he's, he's letting go of all of the parts of his journey, right? Well, there's my fame, my happy crown I had, and there's, you know, all of this, my financial, like my stuff on the plane, my wife, all of these things that I've had. And now that I've completed that hero's journey, Cersei, have mercy on me. Like coming, you know, it's, it's so beautiful. I love that. We'll just let you all think about that. Um, and now we are, we finally come to um deep water. john right? john williams waterhouse many paintings on cersei and i juxtapose this with a 21st century poem to cersei as we kind of finish our historical timeline through the art and literature of cersei no this is not however a this is it's not a thorough analysis this is not a phd dissertation this is some highlights along the way um so you want to read the poem what what, what what why don't we go through waterhouse's paintings and then we'll loop back and read the poem to close since the yeah. poem is modern okay so so waterhouse most of us are familiar with these paintings of circe we've seen them on book covers um right book covers yeah. there's lots of book covers that use these that aren't directly about circe that are about witchcraft they're yeah. available as stock photography you see them a lot everywhere so i thought we should discuss these paintings a little bit so waterhouse painted he was a victorian um so painting at the end of the 19th century um, into the early 20th century so not too long ago um and his if you look at the way circe looks in his paintings you can kind of understand like hopefully our little art history tour, you've seen like how Cersei looks different 
based on the painters and the their lived reality. So we arrive at Waterhouse now, who's these are probably the most widely known images of Circe, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So we have Circe, this is um Circe here. This is her transforming the maiden Scylla or Scylla into the sea monster that Odysseus had to face later on. So that I believe was his first Circe. Let's see what's in 1892. No, so that so this is the original. I left the dates on them so we could talk about them that way too. So he begins Circe offering the cup to Ulysses or Odysseus. She's very triumphant, very empowered. Um, and again, with her wand and he looks trepidatious and she of course has the pigs and you can see the lion claws are here. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you know, that might be a hawk. Oh, it could be. I've never seen that before. Well, leave it to Waterhouse. He would get it right. Yeah. I've never noticed that before. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if you're look, if you're watching instead of listening, we're just looking at the bird that's kind of in the background. Yeah. So that's the 19, 1891 painting. And then the so the second painting was this one of Circe um, turning Scylla into the sea monster or revealing that she was actually a, a sea monster all along. She was the mean girl. We didn't really do the Glaucus story. Do you want to do a few bits for the few minutes for the Glaucus story? Yeah, definitely. Okay, because also isn't this painting called? It's something called like Jealous Circe or something like that, right? Like what is it called? Oh, it's covered over in the slide. Google that. I'll tell the story while you Google it. Okay. Um, so in this particular story, which I think this is in Metamorphosis, isn't it? Ovid's, this Glaucus story comes from the Metamorphosis? Uh, I think so. Okay. Yes. So this story, so Circe is on her island, minding her own P's and Q's like she always is. Yeah. And Glaucus falls for this girl. Glaucus is like this weird merman creature um, mm -hmm. in the novel. Madeline Miller treats this a little bit. She gives a backstory, where in the like mythology there isn't a big backstory. Okay, so basically, Glaucus falls for this maiden Scylla, but he's like this weird merman guy, um, and he goes to Circe to get a potion from her. So Glaucus, so Scylla will fall in love with him, and Circe is like, no way. Even though you're this weird merman guy, I want you, um, and, and he's like, but I don't want you, sweetie. And so things go bad and Cersei ends up turning Scylla into a sea monster, which is a very different mm -hmm. take on Cersei compared to how she's portrayed in the, the Odyssey, right? Like that she is this kind of like vengeful. In the novel, it becomes like something that the young Cersei does. Yes. In uh, Okay, so I found the title. Um, it's Cersei Individuosa. And uh, individuosa is actually a word that still exists in Italian. It means envious woman. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> yeah, so she's in kind of this like the state of jealousy is what this, this painting depicts. But the, the thing is like, this is actually one of my favorite depictions of Circe because I've never like, until I read the backstory of this particular painting, um, I never read it as a as a jealous expression like I read it as an expression of deep focus, which is also why I suspect that it's often used in the front of like witchcraft books like I, I feel like that's the thing you know like craft involves like really deep focus. 
she's so focused and a lot of times the fact that she's like what she is pouring is creating a monster under her feet a lot of times that's like cropped out of this image right so you just get like cersei down to her ankles and you don't see what her deep deep focus and her magical potion are making is a monster a sea monster right yeah Yeah. it's incredible it's really incredible that that this painting you know captures our imagination so um but if you see the whole painting then it's like oh like cersei is like doing something with a sea monster yeah she's like at the very least okay yeah. So, yeah, and she doesn't look envious to me too. It's this deep focus, but it is that kind of like revenge fantasy, mm-hmm. you know, that she's so like she's so pissed off. She's not pissed off. Yeah, almost like I don't know. Is Carrie a good example? No, Carrie like. No, went... Carrie'll suck it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie was like, yeah, she would have she would have not focused that much, so. Oh, do you want me to read the poem? Just a second. Um, sorry. Don't worry. So, we will read. Well, let's do the. We're gonna do the paint. We'll do all four paintings first, okay. and then we'll come back. So this is her holding her cup to Odysseus. Odysseus coming in. So this is Circe's gone from you know the Glaucus story where she's kind of mean and naive and kind of selfishly turns Scylla into a monster or reveals like Scylla's monstrous nature. And then we move on to like victorious Circe, um, who is like, it's very different Circe. You know, she's on her throne and Odysseus is the one like who is coming before her. So it's very different. Like, it's this idea of the witch, the independent woman, the woman, the sovereign woman on her throne. Like the man is approaching with like fear, he's intimidated. Um, and I love Waterhouse's use of the mirror behind Cersei to show Odysseus. Yeah. Right? That like that's I think he is trying to like show us Cersei's perspective, which is so brilliant with the use of the mirror. What yeah. did Cersei see? So not only are we looking at Cersei as if we were Odysseus or one of her servants, victorious on her throne with her potion in hand and her wand held high, um, but then we also get to see what Cersei sees as a reflection. So I think this is just so it's such a like, one of the greatest works of art. Um, You know, because of the way his use of that mirror. Yeah, I love that. So let's move on. So I think after these two, he did one that I actually didn't include, which is that really famous one of the witch in the magic circle with the cauldron. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not specifically of Cersei, but some art historians like put that in this same series although it's not specifically Cersei so he went on to paint two more paintings of Cersei Um, so here is his destiny of Cersei from 1910 and you can see here Odysseus his ships are leaving 
and she's got the bowl to her own lips. Which, you know, I, I was like, what is that about? I don't know. Maybe she's thirsty. They could also be, I don't know, like, you know, when right before he leaves and she makes herself invisible to oh. give them the ram, maybe she has to drink something to become visible again. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting image. And you can and, see like, you know, Waterhouse is like really portraying her like not as evil, but also as very learned. Yeah. You know, like the globe is here, the books are here. Like Cersei is not, in his depictions of Cersei, she's not like this wild, unbridled, unintelligent, you know, she's very sophisticated. Yeah. And so he uses things like globes and books to represent that in his art, being a man of the Victorian era, right? Like, yeah. Um, and then his last painting of Cersei, which is called The Sorceress. And this is now she's very reflective. She's got her books out. She's got all of her materials, something that looks like a beaker. <laughs> <laughs> right? Doing some alchemy, some everyday alchemy. Right? She's doing her everyday alchemy. And, you know, she's alone once more because when you look, so this time Waterhouse uses the window again, but now it's the forest mm -hmm. beyond her. So before it was like, Odysseus leaving perhaps or arriving, but I think this is meant to be leaving. And then it's the forest. There's no, you know, she's completely self-contained. So it's this journey of, you know, we go from the triumphant Cersei, the kind of, what, what did you say that was like the envious uh, woman? In, invidiosa, in the, the envious in Cersei. Yeah. And then, you know, the, she's being very reflexive and thinking about them leaving too. It's like, you know, things are kind of spilled on the table and she almost looks like she's longing for something. Like she's certainly in deep contemplation. Yeah. And I think that's one of the themes of Cersei is this longing for something more. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of us who identify with Cersei like we have a longing for our own island too, you know, like that there is a certain kind of melancholy we have when we are like walking a life that doesn't feel like we're kind of queen of our own island. Yeah, well, that's a Virginia Woolf's uh, A Room of One's Own, right? Right. The importance of having that, yeah. Because uh, women are so often invaded in their personal time and that's also a story of Circe you know like that she's she's it's not that she's invaded it's that people are always coming right and she has to deal with them as they arrive and they're often dealing with her like she's the problem but she's the one who lives there so. <laughs> <laughs> right they're coming to her she's not yeah. going to them exactly <laughs> okay so shall we finish up with this brilliant poem yes um went the wrong way. So this is Circe by the great American poet, um, Linda Paston. I'll read, I'll read to laundry and then you read the rest, okay? I will always be the other woman. I disappear for a time like the moon in daylight, then rise at night, all mother of pearl, so that a man's upturned face watching will have reflected on it the milk of longing. And though he may leave, memory will perfect me. 
one day the light may fall in a certain way on Penelope's hair and he will pause wildly. But when she turns, it will only be his wife to whom white sheets simply mean laundry. Even Nausicaa in her silly braids thought more washing linen than of him, preferring Odysseus clean and oiled to that briny unkempt lion I would choose. This is the next section here. Let Dido and her kind leap from cliffs for love. My men will moan and dream of me for years. Desire and need become the same animal in the silken dark. To be the other woman is to be a season that is always about to end when the air is flowered with jasmine and peach and the weather day after day is flawless and the forecast is hurricane. And the forecast is hurricane. Oh, that's so powerful. That is so powerful, isn't it? To be the other woman, which, you know, in this, I think in her explorations, what I kind of take away from it, it's like the other woman is the longing, the one that you longed for, that perfect taste Mm -hmm. of freedom, of the natural world, of what is not about the laundry, Mm -hmm. right? That person who is not your life. Yeah. Yeah, that life that's not your life, your time on Circe's Island, Mm -hmm. Um, and that is flawless but that there was always like this potential for danger. The forecast is hurricane. Mm. So to stay in a world that you don't belong in. Like uh, staying in the underworld. Like staying in the underworld, you can't stay there too long. Yep. Like we need to move on. And for those of us who are like the Circe, the other woman, the, the island, that you don't stay, it's like, it's also, it, it's not a place where those people who don't belong there, like we can't make them stay. Like she said to Odysseus, like, yeah, go. Because you don't belong here. We don't belong in each other's worlds. I have, maybe this is too personal, I don't know. But I have always liked this state. I have always liked the state of the other woman, you know, (laughs) or like being the person like at the conference or something, you know, like being, you know, like the sort of, um this friendly thing that has like a, an intimacy for a while, but you both know that you have your own lives and nobody is fucking with those lives, you know? And it creates um, a friendship and a relationship that's like in this little bubble that can't exist anywhere else. And you can tell these secrets and be yourself in this little tiny space. And then you just go home. And um, I've always liked the neatness of this. And in that you can be like, you can be someone else. You can be whoever mm-hmm. it is. I think a lot of people probably do this on the internet. Now I've never done it because I've, I've always thought, well, if I was going to do this, I would actually just do it at a conference. <laughs> Cause I have, and it's fun. Um, <laughs> like summer camp. Like summer, well, summer camp, it would be harder to be someone else, but at a conference, yeah, so like just take off your name tag like I don't know who that is <laughs> tear off your name tags <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I think that's really taboo for women too it's like you can be someone else yeah. and I think although you know like identifying with Cersei and you know being this woman who is sovereign is on her own 
doesn't conform and therefore must be a witch and must be up to things with animals and plants. Um, usually we are, by the way, if we are non-conforming women who are happy in our own skin, we are often, but not always, up to things with animals and plants. Definitely. Um, I make my own deodorant. Yeah. <laughs> <Just saying. laughs> but it's like to be her, if that is who you are, then there's also like this other imagery about because you are seeking to understand like the natural magic of the world, like the ability to shift and transform yourself um, either because you want to or to to meet the expectations of what's demanded in the situation you're in, but you, yeah. that you're still staying Cersei, like you're still on your island of who you are, even if in this moment you need to like shape shift into somebody else. Like if you're Cersei, you're always Cersei in your heart, even if you don't get to be Cersei like out loud. Yeah. So, yeah, she just makes me so wistful, you know, like I find like she's this, this romantic idea of being that woman on that island, living that life, um, free of all of the trappings of the civilized world. So hail Cersei. So yes. thank you so much for going with us on this journey through the history and mythology of Cersei. Um, I do write about her in Entering Hecate's Garden, and I hope you enjoy exploring Cersei. There. It's quarter to two. We should stop the recording. Oh, yes, we should stop the recording.